Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk to Podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I am so happy you joined me for today's segment. I am thrilled that it's it's sunny today. It's warm in Louisville or outside Louisville, Kentucky, where I live, and we've had several weeks of cold snow and just much colder weather than I like being a very southern girl. <laughs> So I'm excited to see the sunshine today, and I'm going to roll this show right along because I can't wait to get out there in it and take a long, long walk with Johnny and have a great afternoon. But before I do that, I want to be sure that we get this week's podcast done. I've missed the past couple of weeks, and I get a little antsy when I didn't do a podcast, and people start emailing me and saying, what's wrong? You haven't had a new podcast. It's just that I've been pretty busy. So I'm excited to be back today, and today's show is a little different because I'm going to be taking lots of questions that really don't have long enough responses to devote an entire show to that whole topic, but a couple of them are questions or comments that I get routinely from readers and listeners of the show, so I'm going to be sure that we address these things and so I can talk about it a little more in-depthly than I would be if I were responding to you via email. Uh, Let me get to some announcements before we get rolling with our topics, with our questions. First of all, if you came to Kisha 2015, thank you, thank you, thank you. Had a big ballroom. I've never spoken in a room quite that large before. Huge crowd. It was a lot of fun. I presented the three-hour version of the new book, my new book that's coming out about stages of play Uh, And let me just say, it was way too much material for a three-hour presentation, but we got through it, and it was fun, and I, again, love, love, love seeing all my local friends that I don't always get to see anymore since I'm not on as many therapy teams as I used to be, since I'm doing mostly um, private little friends. So it was so exciting to see lots of my old friends, and if that is you, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming and for um, showing up like you always seem to do. Second announcement, man, have I been getting the emails about when's your conference schedule for 2015 coming out. We are still finalizing dates and locations and all of those things, and I have several groups that I'm speaking to this year. They're with children's hospitals and therapy groups that are just doing some in-house education, and boy, I'm trying to really coordinate the schedule and make sure that I don't prematurely get any dates out there and have to pull back. So that's why we've been a little bit later getting the schedule out. Um, If you have real questions, if you're trying to plan travel and trying to kind of budget for what you want to do this year, shoot me an email, laura at teachmetotalk.com with your location, and I can let you know if we are sort of going to be close to you or if you're thinking, hey, I live somewhere like North Dakota, I'm, I'm willing to go to Chicago, anything like that, and I will let you know if it's a distinct possibility that we'll be near you. So you can email me about that if you want to. Last announcement is concerning the Easter therapy guide that I did last year. It's it's still so relevant. And let me tell you what Easter therapy guides are, or what therapy guides are. They are online videos, usually last about an hour. 
they're pretty cheap. Most of them are around twenty bucks, twenty five bucks. But you get SLPs get CEUs with them for free. Can you believe that? What a deal! So this latest one, or the one that's most relevant this time of year, is the Easter Therapy Guide, and there are over twenty five variations of seasonal therapy activities related to Easter and springtime that you can use with toddlers in your sessions. They are easily used with moms. So if you work in a state with where you're doing a lot of coaching, you're not taking a lot of outside materials in, but you're still seeing that family in their home and you're making suggestions, don't fall into the trap of thinking, <laughs> I can never suggest anything new or out of the norm or something this mom doesn't already have right here available for us. That That's just not true. When you're using a consultative model like that or a coaching model, you can still say to mom, hey, um, does your family like Easter eggs? Do you guys do that? Do your older children like that? Is that something that's, that's, that you're going to plan to do? How about we talk about ways that we can target our communication goals within the context of that really fun activity or holiday-related things that were um, that are are common this time of year. So take a look at that Easter therapy guide, and again, the CEUs are free. If you're a speech pathologist, that that means ASHA CEUs. You can certainly always use it for your state licensure program. And even if you're not a speech pathologist, if you are a developmental interventionist, early intervention specialist, teacher people, you know what they call you in your state. If you're one of those people, but you still need to get CE credit, you can always take my courses and then You'll get a certificate of completion, and that's what you file with your state or or your credentialing body, whoever you have to submit that stuff to. So be sure that you're taking a look at that and um, getting some really fun therapy ideas for the next couple of weeks as we lead up to Easter. I also want to mention that today I, I broke open the Therapy Tip of the Week vault. And so there's a cute Therapy Tip of the Week from 2012 when my hair was browner and uh, just as we first started that whole Therapy Tip of the Week series, um, the one of the original ones was about Easter activities. So I reposted that today, and I'll be posting some other ones in an effort not to recreate the wheel and not to redo a topic that I previously shared on Therapy Tip of the Week. So take a look at teachmetotalk.com if you've not done that in the past day or so because you're going to see some new ideas there for you. All right, let's move on to today's topic. The first one is a question that I get, oh my goodness, not every day, but at least once a week, <laughs> once every 10 days, I'll get an email or a comment on the website or contact form or whatever we're calling those things now where someone will say to me, some version of, I need help writing goals, or can you recommend a resource for writing goals, or do you have a podcast about writing goals or a post or something like that? What can I do? Let me just say it is so hard to write material like that or publish something specifically for that goal because every program is different. Every agency is different. And the truth is most payer types are pretty darn different as well in what the expectation is with what you should be doing as far as writing your goals. And even when you get it down, when you think, I know the formula, it's likely to change. 
<laughs> if you work in a state early intervention program or, or see children through a state program, you certainly know what I mean. You know, some years we write goals that are completely measurable where we have percentages in there and, again, something that, that is very comfortable for us as therapists because we always want to think about measuring and, and being able to really document progress in black and white from session to session to session to session. And then some years your state programs or your, your even your school programs could come along and say, no, we don't want to do that. We want everything in more functional terms. And parents would never really think about, I want him to do something 80% of the time or even something like most of the time. So, again, the rules for that, for goal writing, really, really do change. And that's why I don't address that specifically because I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what your criteria for writing goals should be. Now, we all know if we went back to grad school what those academic requirements would be. But, again, sometimes our programs dictate that we go in a different direction. So here's what I do. Here's how I wrap my head around that. First of all, I'm always going to follow what the current rules are. So if I know that they're including something like you have to have a functional outcome or you have to have some, some um, you know, way to measure it with something out of so many times or even if you went real general with something like every day, whatever the current vogue <laughs> acceptable way to write a goal for whatever program I'm working with or how whatever method or, again, payer source, depending on whatever kid I'm seeing, I'm going to think about that role first and, and write the goal within that format because why? Because we have to, to get paid and, and make sure that our services are covered, whether that's directly to you as an independent provider or the, the place that you work for, you got to get that piece covered first. So if you don't know what your requirements are or your rules are for your particular program or, or payer type, start there first. Do that first. The second thing that I always do is look at what a parent wants. And again, my practice now is, is I see patients privately or little friends, little clients privately. So moms are coming to me with really, really specific agendas. Usually now it's a second opinion, a third opinion, a 14th opinion. You know, they've usually seen someone before they come to me now. And so I always make sure that I'm addressing whatever mom's big purpose for coming to see me is. So if she's talking about, you know, we're really not getting anywhere with pecs or I'm really still not hearing any words or, you know, I'm worried about autism or whatever the big thing is. I want to make sure that whatever goals or recommendations I write for a child accomplish what that parent took the time <laughs> to seek me out and get services directly from me. And, again, I'm, I'm outside of that normal kind of system now. So I want to make sure that I'm addressing what that parent wants. But even if you're working, say, with a state early intervention program or in a private practice or whatever you or, or even guys in a school setting, you're still going to want to make sure that you're addressing that parent's primary concern. Or in a school situation, of course, it would be 
classroom communication or participation or whatever that big reason for getting referred. So that's your second consideration. Let me make sure that I'm I'm addressing whatever this reason was to bring this child to me in the first place. The third thing that I like to do is really, and again, this would be a child that I'm going to see for ongoing therapy, and this would be applicable to most of you. So a kid you're going to see, you know, for a while, week after week, or however frequently you service a child or see a child, you're going to want to make your goals always reflect milestones or skill acquisition or, again, encompassing what that parent wants them to be able to do. And I still do really, even if I'm addressing a big overall goal like mom wants them to talk, I still always make sure that developmentally, not chronologically, but developmentally I'm looking at whatever milestone would be next or would be most appropriate to address first within the context of that overall goal. So again, if it's the mom wants the kid to talk, but the kid is nowhere near talking, I'll talk to mom and say, of course, you know, this may be on the IFSP, it may be on a team's kind of overall goal, but I'll say to her, mom, that's our long-term goal. (laughs) But our short-term goals are going to be based what would really come next, what logically, knowing what I know about communication development, knowing what I see about your child right here and his and her particular strengths or weaknesses. This is what logically, based on all those things, we know should happen next. So I'm going to keep it milestone-based, keep it in that next little rung of skills. And then more likely than not, I do tack on that little functional outcome piece. So it might be something like, Logan will use single words to communicate with his parents so that he is less frustrated during daily routine or so that he is understood most of the time. So if mom has complained and said, you know, he, I just don't know what he wants. I just, he tries to tell me stuff. I can't understand him. He just goes and cries. You know, that, that'll give you your functional outcome. That'll give you that so that piece on the end of that. And, again, this may not be helpful for some of you who need more specifics. Like I think sometimes when people write me these kinds of emails, they want me to say, here's my goal bank. Here's the link to that. Just copy these and you're going to be okay. Guys, that never really works <laughs> because we should, and it's a place to start if you're not a skilled goal writer. But really, we should be so in tune with what a child's needs are and what a parent's uh, hopes are that you'll be able to accomplish with their child, what your program requirements are, and what the milestones are, so that you're you're that, that's going to be really individualized for each particular child. So to say, always write it like this, or or these are the 10 most frequent goals I use, uh-uh, that really doesn't work that way. But I wanted to kind of give you the overall guidelines that I consider and that I think about um, when I'm working with individual children. And I hope that that helps you. You know, if you'll kind of think about it, uh, I need to follow the rules of my program. I need to accomplish what mom and dad want me to accomplish. 
I need to keep it milestone and skill-based with that next little rung of skills that, that should occur next as we're working even toward a longer-term goal. But this is, this is what should happen next. And then lastly, I, I need to keep it so that there's a practical reason that when we achieve that goal, this kid will now be able to blah, 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 blah. So if you'll think about those things, you'll usually be okay. So I wanted to put that, that little word of advice out there. And it is a, a question that I get all the time. So now I'll be able to say to someone who, who emails me that question, listen to podcast number 255. There's your answer. <laughs> so glad we talked about that. Second question that I've gotten that's a pretty common question. I'm not going to read the specific question because I do not want to embarrass the person that wrote it because I I didn't even go back and look at it because I didn't want any big details. <laughs> Again, <coughs> excuse me, not to call anybody out or make anybody feel like I'm on their case or whatever or pointing out that they're doing something wrong. So I wanted to keep it really, really general. And it's a really common question, and it involves something like this. Usually it's a therapist who's writing in, and she says something like, I'm working with the child right now, and he is, and fill in the blank, stubborn, headstrong, strong-willed, <laughs> defiant, any word like that. And then they'll go on to say, kind of as a little justification, I've tried everything I know how to do. He still won't do it. I do therapy. Sometimes I'll say, I've followed all of your recommendations and it's still not working. What else should I try? I've kind of learned since we started Teach Me to Talk in 2008, and even really before then, when I was had our big play group program and we had several therapists that worked for us. And as I've worked on teams, you know, since the late 90s and early intervention, this is the lesson I've learned. Anytime I hear a word like headstrong, strong-willed, stubborn, defiant, wants his own way, self-directed, anytime I hear something like that, I always have taught myself, and guys, let me just say, even this isn't just an external thing too. This would be internally. When I'm feeling that about a child, and yeah, it has happened. You want to kind of instinctively, you want to you want to say this is about behavior, and this is this kid, and it's his personality or his temperament or whatever. But honestly, it really goes back to his level of enjoyment that he's experiencing with you in the session. Because here's the truth. If you've made it really fun and if you've met him at his just right developmental level, you're not working at a level that's too hard so that he gets overly upset with you because you're asking him to do the impossible, or you're not working at a level that's too easy so that he is bored and thinks, what else you got, lady? <laughs> if you're working at that just right level and you have done everything you can to include materials and, and activities and things that he likes, and you've taken into account his own little quirks and personality, and 
you've taken care of yourself, meaning that you are totally dialed into what you're doing, that you enjoy working with children, <laughs> that he, this kid needs to feel like he's the highlight of your day and that family needs to feel like they are the most special people on your caseload. If you had taken care of all of those things, you really won't describe a child as headstrong or stubborn or defiant or all those other words. You really won't because those kinds of issues disappear when you've taken care of those foundational pieces. And I know some of you right now are driving or exercising or listening at your desk as you're kind of doing busy work or you might be doing a household tour like washing dishes or ironing or whatever you do when you listen to the podcast. I know there are at least some of you who are shaking your head that can't possibly be, and you're kind of disagreeing with me about that, <laughs> or you're feeling like there are some children who are just born this way or whose parents have parented them in a way that, that disposes them to be nasty <laughs> a lot of the time, or their sensory needs are such that it it propels them to not want to do what I want them to do. I mean, you pick a reason, whatever you've blamed it on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those things could be reality, but the truth is when you take care of yourself, meaning that you are completely dialed in, you know what you're doing, you're, you're, you're responding, you're totally responding to what that kid needs to do or to accomplish again, by meeting him at that just right developmental level and that you yourself like what you're doing, that you are enjoying yourself and having a good time as you're working with this child and with this family, so many of those things really do fade away. So my reply to a lot of those emails, really I always say double down on fun. Double down on having the kid enjoy himself before you get any other goal accomplished, before you think about teaching him to talk, before you think about teaching him to understand words and follow commands or whatever goal you're working on. Before you do any of that, first and foremost, that child has to enjoy interacting with you. And again, now some of you may say, but that's not learning. That's not teaching. I have to teach him to learn. And sometimes it's not fun. Guys, when they're toddlers, it has to all be about having fun, okay, especially when it's, when they're doing something that's difficult for them. And let's face it, if talking weren't difficult, if communicating weren't difficult, if learning language was not a really difficult thing for them to do, you wouldn't be there. As a therapist, there would be no need for you to be involved at all. So you've got to really boil things down to that interaction, participation, Engagement piece has to be there, and it's a lot easier to do when that child likes you and likes what you're doing. So with kids that seem really, really difficult like that, you always have to boil it down to, am I working at the right level and am I doing things he likes? Don't worry about teaching him to follow adult-led activities, blah, 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 blah. He will have plenty of time for that when he gets in school. He will have that drilled into him, believe me. But during this toddler and early preschool period, you should really, really use things and use activities and use, use toys, use events in his home or if he's seeing you at 
your clinic or your office or your school. Do things that kids like or that that particular, that specific child will like. Start there first, okay? And I always try to explain this when a mom says to me, yeah, but I don't want him to be spoiled or I want him to know that he has to do what you say. And again, I always say, yeah, 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 yeah. We will have time for that. We will get to that. But right now, he's just not ready. He's not ready to do that. And and some of you... As educators, or even if you're kind of that behaviorist sort of parenting style, you're thinking, no, he's going to do what I say, and he's going to do it, and he's going to like it. He can't get there from there. And guess what? Neither can you. You're too far apart from your goal and from your intention, which is for him to participate, for him to have a good time. So sometimes it just means kind of going back to the drawing board and thinking, okay, this is really all about having fun. I've got too much stress on this kid, and a lot of times you put too much stress on yourself too. You're working on goals that are too hard. You're taking materials that are completely unfamiliar to him or irrelevant, things he doesn't like to do. Or things that he is so bored with, you know, his, you know, he he has played with the same four toys for 18 months now, and he's sick to death of them. So there's no novelty, there's no reason, there's no hook for him to kind of want to be there with you. So look at all those things anytime you're looking at that. And again, I know some of you are thinking, but Laura, what about the behavior? Get it, but guys, I promise if you'll pay more attention to how the kid feels meaning that he's laughing and smiling and having a good time and wanting to stay with you and you're not having to fight him to want to stay and play and be together. And, again, this isn't just for therapists. This could be for moms, too. A lot of times moms will say, well, I have no problem at all just playing with him, but then when I try to work on these speech things, ah, it just goes south. It's terrible. He doesn't want to listen. He doesn't want to stay with me. He doesn't want to do what I'm doing. And I always say to mom, you know, you can work on language with anything. We can teach words anytime, any place. You don't need a specific set of therapy materials. You don't need the toy that I used last time he was here. You don't need all that. You can work on teaching him to understand words and to use words or signs or pictures or gestures or whatever level your kid's working at. You can teach that with anything. So back up to what he likes. Back up to when it was going well. And let's look at how we can incorporate those goals and those strategies there in that activity that he already likes to do. Because then you're not fighting him. You're not you're not making him like it, okay? So number one piece of advice is when you have a kid that you want to put that little label on with stubborn, strong-willed, headstrong, defiant, whatever you call it, always step back and take a look at, i got to make sure this kid is having fun first, and then I can work on my other things in. And, guys, that takes some time and it takes some practice and it takes some skill. But the first thing is realizing that it's happening and then realizing I can make a difference with this. I can change. And let me just kind of give you a personal story. I hit it off with nearly every kid I meet because I try really hard to do that. And, again, I want to be the highlight of the week and, the, you know, I want them to really like me first and foremost. But every once in a while – I'll have a kid that for whatever reason, I push his buttons or he pushes my buttons or vice versa. And again, thank you, God, it does not happen very often. But I remember this one little guy from years and years and years ago. And I may have shared this story on the podcast previously, but 
I'm going to do it again because it's so fitting. It was when we had our playgroup program, so over, gosh, that was early 2000s to 2004. So over 10 years ago now. This little guy's probably in middle school. But he um, came to our program, and he wouldn't sit for circle time. If we were playing with trucks, he was in the ball pit. But if we were playing in the ball pit, he was playing with trucks. If we were sitting at the table, he was running around. If we were running around, he was sitting at the table. You get my drift? I mean, whatever whatever the little group was doing, he was having no part of it. And I let that get the better of me. And I really dreaded almost when that kid would come in and I would kind of negatively anticipate what would happen. And you know what? I think I made it worse. I think my attitude (laughs) perpetuated that challenge with that child long past the time that it should be. And, again, I I realized pretty quickly, say after about a month, I realized, you know, this really might be more about me than it is about this kid. And and I've got a model for my other therapist here how we handle a really fun little friend like this who isn't – responding to our normal strategies and for so much of that I had to just let go of thinking you know I'm gonna make him do it or or all of those things that I felt and I really had to reframe kind of how I thought about that kid and certainly how I responded to that child because again I really think my attitude my underlying kind of building frustration there exacerbated that problem well beyond what it should have been so I got myself together (laughs) and let me tell you another thing that happened I saw another therapist come in it was this OT and boy she was she's so good but she was so young and she was just starting out but I admired her so much because she was so loving and so responsive to that kid that, you know, and I think of myself and certainly even then thought of myself as loving and responsive. But for whatever reason for that 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 one particular kid, I, I wasn't really feeling it. And I watched that therapist who came in for a meeting and she came in, um, it was kind of overlapping. She came in for a lunch meeting with him and then we had, he was an afternoon, in an afternoon session. So he was there a early because the, you know the parents were there for the meeting too and I just watched her with him and I thought she looks like she is totally in love with this kid and she has so seen strengths in him and better participation in him and better everything in him because she started at the right place and you know part of me wanted to say well that's because she sees him at home and that's because she did it all these excuses all of those BS excuses, and pardon my language if that offends you. I hope it doesn't offend you. If you're a longtime listener of this show, boy, that's pretty darn mild. But all of those those silly reasons that I had made up for myself in my head for why this kid wasn't participating, I had to just kind of let all that go. And it was such a powerful lesson for me. And I'm happy to say that I have not had to learn that lesson too many times after that. I always think back to that one little boy and how it just completely turned around for him once I got myself right. And once I said, you know, 
I am going to respond to him like he is my favorite kid in the world. And I'm going to make myself react differently or or even not react, start, begin differently so that I can get on a different level with this kid. And let me tell you, it turned around pretty darn quickly with that kid. Now, occasionally, those kinds of little behaviors would rear their ugly head again, but it always made me think, Laura, fix yourself first. Address this within yourself first, and then you can move on to address it within the child. And again, thankfully, that doesn't happen very much. And certainly if you are in early intervention, I know that you're probably a lot like me. You love kids. You adore toddlers. You feel like, man, this is a fantastic gig I have here. You know, a lot of days it's so good for you that you feel like, I have made the right career decision. I'm in the right place. This is what I was born to do. But sometimes we do have those little challenges that come up. And let me just say, address it with yourself first. Start with yourself so that you can make sure you're in the right place. And then try to think about what you can do to make it easier for that child. And let me just reiterate, I am so happy (laughs) that I did not have to learn that lesson over and over and over and over and over. I got it pretty quickly, especially with that one particular kid who did seem to push my buttons and I pushed his buttons in a negative kind of way more than more than probably any other kid in my whole career. Um, But learn from me, learn from that, that story there in that you can fix it and you can make adjustments and a lot of times it starts with you with that kind of thing okay that was my second little question that little topic to address and I hope that's been helpful for some of you let me talk about switch gears again and talk about this question now it does not come up as frequently as goal writing or bad kid (laughs) But it, it comes up, it's come up a couple of times lately. And so when this when themes recur in my life, I always think or questions on the on the podcast, I always think, man, or emails, this needs to be addressed. This is coming up for a reason. Let me see what I can do about this. And the question was from a therapist, and she was a really newer therapist, and she said you know, I feel like I'm handling this job. I've made this transition to early intervention. I love it. Some days I don't feel like I know what I'm doing, but guess what? I just go try to have fun, and it all works out anyway. And I want to just applaud her for saying, yes, that is the number one requirement, that you have a good time too, and that really does take care of lots of other things. But she said, I've had this situation happen. This is this has never come up for me before, not in my clinical training with grad school, not in my CFY when I had a supervisor that I could talk to about all the time. And it's coming up now. So I need some help with it. And she said, I had this one little guy that toward the end of the session, and I believe she said she sees him for an hour, and she does home visits. And, you know, so she's working with the mom, and they're doing a lot of family-based things. But she said by the end of the hour or close to the end of the hour, he is wiped out. He has just had it. She said sometimes it's like he needs to go to sleep. He is just overtired what can I do to increase his stamina is what I think that she how she worded it let me just talk about what that is now sometimes you could go automatically to the kid needs more rest he needs more physical rest he's not sleeping well enough I need to help mom figure that out and again I say yeah 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 yeah, whatever that could be the case but 
you know, or you could say, well, you know, his allergy medicine's making him sleepy. You know, you're looking for all of these internal things. This is what I think might be going on. And again, without seeing the specific child, it's so hard to really say. But I've seen, I have seen this happen a lot. And guys, it's 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 a good thing when you have kids. And here's the kicker: if they are on at the beginning of the session, they're excited to see you. They are working hard. Mom is getting excellent results from them too. You're working with mom, things are trugging along, but then the kid just kind of peters out for you as the session goes. A lot of times that just means that they are working their little brains so hard, for lack of a better word. They are building those connections. They are amassing new, you know, neurological pathways, whatever you want to call it. They are doing major internal building of new skills that, of course, they're going to be tired as they progress. And guess what? You would be too. It's like when you go work out at the gym. Wouldn't you kind of be worried if by the end you weren't tired? You would think, what? I'm not working hard enough. I'm not, you know, I've got to pump up my intensity here. I've got to try a little bit harder. That's the same thing with our kids. So a lot of times, especially with your children who, again, are making a lot of progress, and you might take it as a sign that, that you know, you need to do something else. You know, you need to address it from a different angle. And I just want to say with a lot of these kids, you know, that just means that good things are happening. There's, there's you know, neuroplasticity is happening right in front of your very eyes. Those children are getting better. They're learning new things. And, again, that takes a lot of internal Energy. I saw this statistic last week. I read it in a little article, and then I clicked on this lady's thing online, and she was so interesting to me. She, and it was about, I'm doing some research about neuroplasticity for another kind of pipeline project, something way down the road. And she was talking about the human brain generates more electricity in one brain than all the cell phones on Earth. And that was astounding to me. And, again, some of you are like, oh, Laura, I can't believe you would respond that way to that kind of statistic or blah, blah, blah. I just really had to kind of sit and think about that. And it really did remind me of this question with why is this kid getting so tired on me? It's because you're doing everything right. Now, if he did that like 10 minutes into the session, or let's think about our little babies that are premature, those little preemies, they go into shutdown pretty quickly because it's protective and because you've overstimulated them, you've taxed their system to the point that they say, enough, I can't have any more, this is it, and they just fall asleep. And you certainly know about that and have seen that or read about that. You certainly know that that's likely to happen. And this is akin to that, but it's just a little more developed and again if it's happening earlier in your sessions you know that you probably do need to back off a little bit and like really look at what you're doing or or use some more pacing kinds of stuff so that you have some activities or some things that you're doing that aren't quite as intense so that you kind of do the ebb and flow and you can get a little longer session or longer um, time of participation out of a child that way But if you have a kid that really, you know, you have a solid 45 minutes or so where he's into it and you're into it, mom's into it, and you're just so many things are happening, it's fantastic that he's kind of worn out after 45 minutes. And I'll just tell you this, too. 
I kind of worry about the, the kids who moms say, and I had this happen when I was consulting with a kid back in the fall. He gets a lot of therapy. He gets speech. He gets OT. He gets ABA. He's seeing a couple of different therapy teams, so kind of going uh, from center to center and session to session. And I was saying to mom, well, how does he handle all that therapy? You know, that's a lot. That's a lot for a four-year-old. And she said, oh, he does absolutely fine. But he did. He did kind of still take a long nap in the afternoon. But I, I kind of it. It kind of perked my ears up because I sort of thought, on some level, <laughs> he should be a little bit tired after sessions because they may not be working at a level that's challenging enough for him. And we would again see a little more fatigue or a little more. Um, response letting you know that man I'm working at a level that's that's just right for me meaning that I'm I'm challenged and I'm learning new things and this is a kid too that that was not making enough progress especially for the amount of therapy that he was getting so it's a kind of a different situation too but it did sort of pique my interest that mom said he wasn't ever really tired and you know he did kind of go home and collapse but after four or five hours of therapy in a row and uh, let me just say too that he, when I worked with him, and when we ch- when we changed his what he was doing in a session and kind of what the requirements were, he fatigued a lot more quickly, which let me know, yeah, he's now kind of we're working at a level that that's requiring more um, participation and better, not just, not physically either. I'm talking about mentally and emotionally so of course he's going to be a little more tired so don't always look at that worn out at the end of a session it's a bad thing I've had some moms that say man I love it when you come or when I when I bring him right before nap time because he sleeps so good after speech (laughs) that's a compliment guys that's a compliment so don't look at that um, always in a negative kind of way. Okay, last topic for the day. I'm going to get out of here. So like I said, I want to get out in that beautiful sunshine and warm weather today. Let's talk about one more semi-related thing, and this is the power of distraction. And I meant to mention this when I was on the question before the last one, when I was on the question about the stubborn, headstrong, won't do what I say, noncompliant, defiant, that kind of kid. A lot of times with those kids, we become so interested in them being on our agendas and doing exactly what we expect and what we say that we expect them to stay on task and to especially do something that's hard for them like transition when they have loved an activity that you want to move on or vice versa, they need to stay with the activity a little bit longer and they want to move on. And so, again, we kind of, you know, dig our heels in with he's going to do this when really what we should do is is use something to help him move on and to make it more fun. And, again, sometimes we as speech-language pathologists and people that value words (laughs) We will go on and on and on and on with verbal explanations for these kinds of kids when they are about to lose it over something, when really we should use more visual cues or visual 
stimuli, meaning we should just shut up. We should just stop doing all that explanation and talking, especially when a kid isn't really understanding what we're saying, and just move on to the next thing and kind of show him what comes next because that helps him get over (laughs) the disappointment of not being able to play with what he really, really wanted to play with. And we almost shoot ourselves in the foot thinking, oh, I'm working on his social emotional maturity here and I'm helping him learn to cope and blah, 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 blah. If we would just kind of move it along and get to that next thing, especially if it's something he also loves, that power of distraction can be huge. It can be huge for us. So use that. Know that. Know that when things are looking like they're about to fall apart, when you can sense that a tantrum's coming on, especially early in the therapy process, if you have seen a kid for less than six months and he's starting to kind of fall apart, don't try to fight that. Don't try to work through that. Move on to the next thing. Really use that power of distraction in your favor. And let me, again, just talk about how that works for you. And you can, as I'm saying this example to you, this is what you can say to a mom. This is how you can explain it to a mom. Because, again, we'll sometimes have moms who are so hyper-focused on the behavior piece or on the we've got to learn or whatever that they really make things worse with the kid than if they just moved on to the next thing. Now, thankfully, most moms know that. They get that. And in their everyday lives, that's what they do. They just think, oh, my gosh, getting dressed is going to really upset him, so I'm just going to do it as fast as I can, and then we're going to move on to something else that he really likes. Or he doesn't like to brush his teeth, but I have to do it because I don't want him to have horrible teeth, horrible Um, you know, dental bills here. I'm not going to have a kid with a mouthful of cavities. I've got to brush his teeth, but I'm going to do it in a way that's really fast and get it over with, or I'm going to totally distract him while we do it so that he will allow me to do it. Sometimes we'll do this with picky eaters. We'll let them watch a DVD or something because you can get more food in that mouth, get more more calories in that little body with a kid who's at risk with failure to thrive or or won't ever eat a solid food or, you know, whatever the situation has to be because you've distracted him enough that he'll do something that's really aversive to him, like eat or, you know, eat a new food or whatever the situation has to be. So use your power of distraction. And here's what I was going to say with the personal thing. Think about yourself. If you are really, really, really um, bogged down about something, say – Oh, gosh, when you were younger, it could have been, you know, or, and I don't mean to offend those of you who are young, but this can happen when you're older, too. So let's say you've had a, a breakup of some sort. You've had a relationship end or uh, you've had a bad fight with somebody that you really, really love. Or it could be even be something that's not so emotionally charged. It could be that you're worried about something. You know, who knows what it is? Fill in the blank. You know what you're worried about in your own life. Have you noticed that you can just be in utter turmoil about that? I mean, you have driven yourself about it, and you are torn up, and you are in a knot, but then something happens out of the blue. You watch a funny movie. You know, you you have a fun experience. You you shop, (laughs) whatever it is that you do. You help yourself move on from that mentally and emotionally by doing something else that is completely unrelated to the original problem 
that you are experiencing. And that's what distraction does for our little toddler friends too. And so use that with moms and really talk about, you know, especially in the beginning with therapy, we don't have to work through every tantrum. We don't have to teach the whole, you don't always get your way. Life is hard. You have to follow the rules even when you don't like it, blah, blah, blah. You can. There's plenty of time for that. We do not have to teach every two-year-old that lesson every single minute of the day. We just don't, especially when we're working on communication because we need that interactive piece and we need for them not to be mad. We need for them to be emotionally okay and regulated. So that distraction piece, moving on to the next thing, holding, don't always play with the first things that they love right away. When you have a kid who is prone to fall apart, who's prone to tantrums, think to yourself, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play Thomas until he doesn't want to play anymore. Or last week he loved snack time so much with me that this time I'm gonna save it until I feel like I'm about to lose him or until he's upset about something else. Know how to use that whole, that leverage piece that you have with what he likes the best as his distractor when something is about to happen. Now, you can wait and use it when he's flailing on the floor, when you've totally lost him, when he's about to rip your hair out. You can wait until then, and it will probably work. It's going to be much, much better if you can catch that tantrum before it happens, so when you can see that he's about had it. And teach moms about that, too. I remember having a little guy, and again, this was years and years and years ago. It was mom's first child. She was pregnant with the second one, so she wasn't feeling good at all. And her little guy was so dysregulated a lot of the day. So OT's working a lot on sensory strategies for her and just, you know, helping the day go better with how they moved from, again, those really practical things that we all have to do, get kids dressed, give them a bath, uh, you know, get them to eat, all of the all of the challenges that we, that we face, especially with children who have really fragile systems. And so mom was working on that with the OT and bless her heart. Again, she was just beat a lot of the time. And I had babies that were two years apart, so I remembered that. Um, and I really talked to her a lot about just don't fight with him about this. This is not that important. Just move on to the next thing. Show him what comes next. He doesn't always understand your words, so make sure you're showing him. Now, this is, again, my pictures work so well for so many children, but a lot of our little guys who were seeing us in early intervention, aren't ready for picture systems yet because the pictures aren't really meaningful. Now, that's not to say that you can't use the picture and over time really teach using the picture as your tool. And some of our little guys that are like this will have such visual strengths that pictures will make sense to them, but not for all children and certainly not for this family. I mean, my goodness, if I had told mom, we're going to take a picture of everything that happens she probably would have just bolted and run from that home herself because she could not handle one more thing. But me just saying to her, if you're trying to go outside with him and if he doesn't understand it, if you're trying to get him dressed and he doesn't want to, you know, let go of the cereal bowl or whatever the little trauma of the minute was, just go get his shoes and just put his shoes on and say, we're going. He always like, don't try to always, always, always make everything um, be a struggle, you know, really move on, 
and help him learn that the next thing isn't always bad, that you can let go of this previous piece and move on. And the best way to do that is you just do it yourself in an efficient, in as efficient and pleasantly (laughs) kind of way. It's efficiently and pleasantly, there it is, that's what I was trying to say, as you can so as not to make everything a big deal. And that piece of advice, I remember when I was, you know, he he was transitioning off at three and I was saying my goodbyes and she said, those practical kind of motherly advice that you gave me <laughs> was better than any of that speech therapy that you did. Now, in a way, that kind of makes you feel like, oh, that's not so good. I, you know, should be doing as good a job on that stuff too. And I really feel like I did with that little boy. But to her, in that life situation that she was in, she needed that that mother that maternal advice, that practical everyday advice, more than she did anything else. And so let that be something that you also consider. And again, think about it as your power of distraction, that that's what I'm going to teach this mom to do. And then you be sure that you're using that in sessions too and that you're modeling that and you're showing her that. You're you're anticipating, you're saying things like, okay, I can see that he's about to be really mad. Can you see that this teacher might come on? Let's talk about how we could handle this. And for some kids, you will not be able to, you will not have time to have that kind of conversation with mom because if you don't jump right on it, they've lost it and you're not getting them back for the rest of the session. But if you get to a point that you can do that, or you can talk about it after or even before so that you can say to mom, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is our plan today. So that you're ready for that or after the fact, you can say, did you see how I noticed that he was about to lose it and then I did this? And then you can talk with mom about how she can incorporate those strategies too. And again, sometimes it's that really practical kind of, we look at it as maybe not quite related to speech-language therapy, but guys, it is, it is, it is, it is. And again, it might be more important. It might be the best thing you ever say to that mom. <laughs> so be sure that you are using that, that you're aware of that, that you you know that, and that's one of more tool, one more strategy that you've added uh, in your repertoire of how you work with our little friends with communication delays and disorders. All right. We have about five minutes left, but I'm not going to start the new topic. We'll save that for next week. It's a good one. This is with a mom with a, a kid who's turning three who is getting some speech therapy, but she, the little girl has regressed because, drum roll, a new baby was born. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that next week with strategies that we can use to help moms who are in that particular life situation. And again, that's really, really common for those of us who work in early intervention. Have a wonderful, wonderful week, and I will...